Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Turn in our Bibles, first of all, to John's Gospel. To John's Gospel. John chapter 17. Now, just understand the context of this. This is, uh, John particularly, has this, what's known as Jesus' great high priestly prayer uh, taking place during the period of Holy Week. Taking place, perhaps, in the upper room after Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. That's certainly the context in John's Gospel and speaks to them of what's going to happen, and also ministers to them about the work of the Holy Spirit, and then he prays. Other people think it's more connected with actually what took place on that first Good Friday. In one sense, that's not the point. It's, it's, it's Jesus praying, and notice, in the midst of everything that was going to happen, these verses from John chapter 17 and verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, that is the disciples. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Now, it's not the easiest part. The whole of that high priestly prayer is not the easiest part of John's gospel. And, and, and the language is quite, can, can be quite confusing if we just read it for the first time. But notice that above everything else, what's Jesus praying about? And I'm going to ask you, what, what is Jesus praying about for his followers? Not for his disciples, but for the people who were going to believe in the message. What's he praying for? Unity. Yes, unity. That's the theme. Above everything else, that's the unity. I pray for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Why? You might ask the question, why, in the midst of all else that was happening during that Holy Week, in the midst of all else that Jesus was facing at the end of that Holy Week, on the Thursday, the Friday, and all the events that took place then, in the midst of all the turmoil of the upper room, in the midst of the crowd of people who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover festival, in the midst of the crowd that had welcomed him in Palm Sunday and, 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 and hosannahed him in Palm Sunday, and yet just within a matter of hours or a day or so, we're going to shout for his death. Why is Jesus here, in a sense, making time to pray for Christians, for those who were going to believe in the message, to be one? I'll tell you why. Because of you that were a bunch of so-and-sos. He knew that we were fallen, that human beings are fractured, 
and they were not the way that we were meant to be. And he knew, as he looked at his disciples and the motley bunch of his disciples, that there was one who was going to betray him, that there was one who spoke much of loyalty, but yet was going to shy away and deny him, that there were others who had followed him, and yet when it came to him, were going to hide away. He knew, as he saw literally before him, the fallenness of humanity. And he knew that the church that was to be built on the teaching of the prophets and the apostles that Peter was to publicly proclaim on Pentecost Sunday, that that church that was to be born at Pentecost would be a church made up of human beings who loved Jesus, yes, but also are fatally flawed. And that disunity, that fracturing, and even worse than that, that tribalistic spirit which has been in the church down through the ages and which I suggested a few weeks ago is manifest in our society today, that simply is one sign of the problem of the human condition. You and your small corner, remember the old hymn, Jesus bids us shine, pure, clear light, and the little refrain, you in your small corner and I in mine. Not actually good theology. Not a good picture of the church. I don't think Jesus would have written that. But that's very much the reality. I think I mentioned when I was sharing with you the thoughts at the end of the book of Joshua, where, or the book of Judges, where there was no king over Israel at that time, and the book ends with the statement, they each did that which was right in their own eyes. This is God's people. These are the, those who have been brought out from Egypt, who have been brought into a land of promise, and yet they did each that which was right in their own eye. And the whole history of Israel is a testimony to the fragility and the fallenness and the weakness of humans, even those who believe in God. And you often will find, do you not, and you might know people who will say, having been in a church, we had relatives staying with us um, from New Zealand who at one time were quite active in church, weren't they? And we don't really know the whole story as to what happened, but they certainly don't go now. But if I was a betting man, and I hasten to add I'm not, if I was a betting man and had felt when I was doing my tour around Oban and the Western Isles, Trossachs in the Western Isles we did in 24 hours, tell you, <laughs> tell you, aye. Um, I would have asked them, especially when I was driving the car, they couldn't really do very much about it, what actually happened? And I'm pretty sure if it was a betting man, somewhere in the story, there would have been a fallout, something would have been said, something would have happened that they didn't like, or some people didn't like them, or whatever else. And then you get the view, well, that's the church, you can, you can keep it. And one of the statistics and David Miller, who's done a lot of work and research in this, will tell you one of the statistics in Britain today is that there's a very large section of people, don't know the number, I don't, David probably would, percentage-wise, of people who once were very active in the church but now are nowhere to be seen. And there's a whole host of reasons for it, but you know what the basic reason is? Human sinfulness and fallenness. And that's why, over these next few weeks, 
we're going to look at some principles of the faith. And I don't apologize, and I, and I, and I say I don't want to be bolshy or cause offense, but at the end of the day, I don't apologize for doing foundations and principles of faith that as a Reformed church, we would hold to. So, if somebody is desperately keen, I'm not saying you will be, and you want to explore the five points of Calvinism, then you can, because I photocopied a little booklet I'm using for our thoughts over these next five Sundays, and it's through in the hall. And if you wish to take a copy and have a read, and then have a major dispute and dissension with me afterwards, well, you're welcome to do so. I've given you permission by already talking about the fractures and fallenness state of the church. Not because, not because I'm sort of hyper-Calvinist, and, and those of you who don't know what that means, well, that's fine, but those of you who do will know what I mean. Not because I'm a hyper-Calvinist, um, or because I have some desire to drag our church back to the 18th, or 17th, or even 16th century. But in the confusion, and dissension, and disputatious, that's a good word for all, oh, I need to get my teeth away on today. Uh, the disputatious state of the church is important that at least some of us are clear as to what are the foundations of the faith. And the very first point is the brokenness and fallenness of the human soul and spirit. And yet, and we're going to sing in a minute, and yet, even as we state that, and as a few minutes' time, we're going to explore that, things we've already explored in the past, but even as we state that, we remember that Jesus prayed. Listen, I'm going to read again what he said, and I invite you to follow, because it isn't easy. I'm not saying it is. It's not easy. So, I invite you to follow up with you in your own Bibles. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. First point of encouragement, who's praying for us? Jesus. Well, that's good to have him on your side, isn't it? He's praying for us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. The very nature of God that Karen very helpfully displayed to us, a God who exists in perfect relationship and harmony. His desire is that his people would live in that spirit of fellowship and fraternity. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me when we're in Jesus, and He is the one who fills our cup to overflowing. Then the things that do divide, the things that are different, the different perspectives that we may well all have, the different experiences that we all journey through, the different views on this or that or the other, disappear before the supreme unity that's found in being in Christ. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. And I have to say, that's one of the things that saddened me most, how unglorifying so often the church is. I don't mean this church. I'm not speaking personally about this congregation, but just the story of the church, the dissensions, the divisions, the disputes, the falling outs. God's desire, Jesus's prayer, is that His glory might be seen in us, so that the world may believe. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. On that day, when we stand before the Lamb, there's not going to be separate doors for Presbyterians, Baptists, Brethren, Congregationalists, raving Charismatics, and right-wing Fundamentalists. 
will be one in Christ, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Thank God for Jesus and that he prays for his church. Let's sing together a hymn that affirms that our faith is not in the church or in human leaders or in even human statements of faith, but in the God who keeps his promises. By faith we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness who walk by faith and not by sight. And we'll stand to sing. And I trust in all our journeyings that is a statement of faith for each and every one of us here. We walk by faith and not by sight. And what are the foundations of that faith? Well, let's turn now to the book of Ephesians. And if somebody can shout out the number of what page, I meant to look up earlier, what page in the Pew Bibles we are, Ephesians chapter 2. You don't get a prize if you shout out the number, it'll just never help someone else find it. Uh, Oh, oh my goodness. There was such a medley. What? 1174. 1174. Thank you. 1174. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, these are verses that we've looked at before. Um, so, we have looked at them, but I just want to draw attention particularly because you see, it's like, isn't it true? When we're building something or making something, it is important that we have the right foundations. Now, we know that, obviously. Because, I mean, for instance, the foundations of this church, 155, 56 years old, and despite all the, the ebb and flow, despite all the changes that have happened to the building, despite the fact that it is aging, and we can see signs of that, the ongoing issues with roof and the steps and dear knows what else, the fact is it's still standing. Why is it still standing? Well, it's still standing because it's made, built on good foundations. My last church, Kemuel Mount Vernon Church, um, was surrounded at one time by sand quarries. Some of you will never remember that. And they took all the sand, because sandy hills, what would you expect? And so they took all the sand out during the First World War and afterward to fill up the, for the trenches. And the church stood there, and there was just basically a big holes right round about it. But it stood there solid. Why? Because it was built on a piece of rock, one of the few bits in that area. And because it was on that rock, it stood the test of time. But it's also standing today, and as I went to visit during the summer, and there's a congregation there, and how is it still standing when in many ways it should have long ago and stuck there in the middle of no man's land in the middle of the London Road? Well, it's standing there because it's built on the foundations of the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. And then these days, it's vital for the church, our fellowship, the church, to be clear as to what these foundations are. And I would respectfully suggest the first one is to be aware just how fractured and frail human beings are. Paul, Ephesians 2 and verse 1, writing to the church in Ephesus, a church that had known great blessing, a church that had grown under Paul's ministry, but then continued to grow, a church that got a letter sent to them, remember, a few weeks ago? You probably won't remember. I say that, remember, but I would remember if I was sent where you were. So, I mean, I'm not, I, I say, ministers are meant to say, oh, you remember, but, you know, we all know that you actually don't. Uh, <laughs> well, let's be honest, if you did, we'd be out of job pretty quickly, wouldn't we? It would all be, we'd all be super saints and really, you know, living in a higher plane. So, um, uh, 
you know. Um, but, but, but this is the church. This is the church that was written, the first letter sent out from the, the, the exalted Lord. I'll just, I don't need to look up, but Revelation chapter 2, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That doesn't mean he was going to take away the candles. It means he was going to take away the presence of the Lord. And that was a real issue. And that's why Paul, back to his letter, where we have before, writes this. He's wanting to remind them just about the amazing grace of God. And how are you reminded of the amazing grace of God? You're reminded and made aware of the amazing grace of God as you're also aware of the amazing state of a sinful humanity. So he says, as for you, verse 1, chapter 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you lived to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. But as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, he's writing there to people who are alive. He's writing to a congregation, people like us, maybe not sitting in a church building, but gathered in someone's home. He's writing to people who had professed faith in Jesus Christ. That's why they would be there. He's writing to people who were getting on with their lives, and some of them were probably doing very well in their lives. Ephesus was a, a, a rich city and a, and a prosperous place in many ways, and yet he's reminding Christians, he's reminding Christians about their natural state. In a sense, he's looking at them now spiritually in the buff. Now, I wouldn't, bless your brothers and sisters, really want to see you all in the buff. I don't think you'd want to see me either. But the reality is God does see us spiritually in the buff, in the raw, as we really are. And when he looks upon human beings, what does he see? He sees men and women, his creation, spiritually dead. And interesting what he says in your transgressions and sins. I don't often read out of a commentary, but I'm going to do so here because John Stott, who has long gone into glory, but a very able man in his day, writes this. I'm just going to read what he says. The death to which Paul refers is not a figure of speech as in the parable of the prodigal son. This, my son, was dead. It's a factual statement of everybody's spiritual condition outside Christ. And it's traced to their trespasses and sins. These two words seem to have been carefully chosen to give a comprehensive account of human evil. A trespass, and he quotes the Greek, and I wouldn't even try to pronounce it to you, is a false step involving either the crossing of a known boundary or a deviation from the right path. A sin 
however, means rather a missing of the mark, a falling short of a standard. Together, the two words cover the positive, negative, or active and passive aspects of human wrongdoing. That is to say, our sins of commission, what we do, and our sins of omission, what we don't do. Before God, we're both rebels and failures. As a result, we are dead or alienated from the life of God. Later on in the letter, he says this, for true life, eternal life, is fellowship with the living God, and spiritual death is the separation from Him which sin inevitably brings. And then he quotes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you so that He does not hear. Then he goes on to say, this biblical statement about the deadness of non-Christian people raises problem for many because it does not seem to square with the facts of everyday experience. Lots of people who make no Christian profession, whatever, or even openly repudiate Jesus Christ appear to be very much alive. One has the vigorous body of an athlete, another the lively mind of a scholar, third the vivacious personality of a film star. Are we to say that such people, if Christ has not saved them, are dead? Yes, indeed we must and do say this very thing. For in the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither the body, nor the mind, nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life. And you can tell it. They're blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of a personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards Him in the cry, Abba, Father. No longing for fellowship with His people. They are as unresponsive to Him as a corpse. So we should not hesitate to affirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally ill the person may be, is a living death, and that those who live it are dead even while they are living. To affirm this paradox is to become aware of the basic tragedy of fallen human existence. It is that people who were created by God and for God should now be living without God. Indeed, that was our condition until the good shepherd of our souls found us. Really, we should all get a copy of that because so well does he explain to us this reality. This past week, I've had two funerals, two days in a row. One, a dear lady, Jean Daly's sister, member of the Baptist Church, who faithfully loved the Lord. Indeed, her sister told me that in her early days, she had had a few gentlemen proposing to her or suggesting that marriage might be an option. And she chose not to marry them. Why? Why? Well, because they didn't look very well. They only had one leg or a you know, peg leg or a, you know, whatever. No, because they weren't Christians. They weren't in Christ. And at the very end of her life, as Jean and family members, not all of whom are Christians by any means, were with her, I'd taken out, I told at the funeral, my selection of redemption hymns. And they were playing them on the CD player and singing along, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, and all that selection of the old redemption hymns and a very real sense of God's peace and presence. And then the funeral, the next day, of a dear friend of Jess Lambs, a lady who lived alongside from where Jess stayed. Jess was a very good and faithful neighbor and friend to that lady, almost like a sister to her. 
a decent soul who had had great tragedy in her life. Her husband had died with MS just at age 39. She had at one time been a member of this church. She never darkened the door of this church again. She never anywhere near, even when she was in the, the nursing home, she didn't want to come to the services. And I did her funeral. One, the aroma of life and of hope. The other, how sad and yet how real is the reality of spiritual death. And Paul goes on to expand on that. He says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedience. He makes that clear that it's a supernatural reality and as people follow the ways of the world, well, we do live in a world where there are many ways, broad roads that lead to, where did Jesus say the broad road led to? Destruction. Many whims and fancies of the age, many trends and ideas of the age. I was reading in the paper just before I came out this morning, a, a book written, written about the whole um, identity agenda that's very pushing today, and I appreciate for many of us, and we really follow this, but you know, the, the whole kind of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and there's that many bits you add on now, it's part of the whole alphabet. I'm sure we could all find a letter that will cover most of us sitting here, you know. And interesting enough, the book's written by somebody who himself is gay, who's homosexual, and yet it's a critique of this tribalism. Remember what I said remember a fortnight ago about the church tribalism? See, this is why I did it, you know. It, that was, it's not just, you know, you and your small corner and to put with everybody else. And that tribalism, where people are picking up and finding their denture in some, you know, and actually, and the, the critique is very, very pointed, he makes the point that it's simply, although it's something himself who is gay, he says, you know, he's funny, it makes the point, for instance, the heterosexual community. It's so bad now, and this is somebody who's gay, that you almost feel as if you're heterosexual, you must be odd. Certainly if you look at the media, and watch many films or dramas or plays, There's all the ways of the world. But he makes the point that behind that, there is the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What's he talking about? Who's he talking about here? Is he talking about God? No. Who's he talking about? The devil. The principality and power of this present age. There is a spiritual reality. The dark forces of the evil one who came. And I noticed it never got out. I hate, ooh. still remember watching Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom and all these, oh, wasn't I? I was sitting with my feet up off the floor like this. Yes. Who comes as an angel of light. Who comes with persuasive words. Who appears so attractive and presents so much that's so plausible, but whose end is And notice what he says in verse 3, all of us, i.e. including the Apostle Paul, who elsewhere calls himself the chief of sinners, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, he says, we were by nature 
objects of wrath. Quite rightly, Karen didn't expound totally on the full story because it wouldn't be suitable for young children. But remember what happened when they left the Garden of Eden? Remember what happened? They were put out. But the door wasn't left open. The door wasn't left open. Turn to the book of Genesis. And how often over the years, and I think, well, hopefully, you have remembered this because I've said it umpteen times, um, these first chapters in the book of Genesis are foundational to our understanding of the faith. Genesis 3 and verse 21. Remember, they were in the buff. That's the whole picture. They were exposed and they hid away from God because they couldn't face God. They realized that they were no longer a, a close, intimate friend. You know, husband and wife might be in the buff quite regularly and walk about and not think anything about it. But you wouldn't necessarily do that in front of even your neighbors or even your best friend. And they knew that there was now a difference. And the Lord God, we took, we're reading verse 21, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed him. Notice again, God's initiative. He's providing for them. And there's all symbolism behind that, which we'll look at over the coming weeks. And the Lord God said, this man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand to take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So what does the Lord God do? He banishes them from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden even cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The doors are shut. There's an angel of judgment and death there waiting. And humanly speaking, we cannot get in. Not only can we not get in, but we're actually under God's judgment. His wrath, as Paul tells us. Those saying God loves the sinner but hates the sin. That's good to say. But the problem is, the sin's in me. The sin's in me. Paul, writing in Romans, speaks about how as an Adam all die, that fatal flaw, that fallen nature, that spirit of rebellion, that unwillingness to bow the knee and to worship the Lord our God with our heart and soul and strength and might, that right is written through human history. If you don't believe me, go online. Search the the modern forms of communication, the bullying and the boasting and the bragging read the newspaper or listen to the news or in a moment of quietness look into your own heart and that ailment is there and the gulf between God and man or humanity is set And that is a vital doctrine. Back to Ephesians as we draw to a close. That is a vital doctrine for us to take on board. Because it influences the church today. If you think that people are reasonably good, and if you remember what I said a few weeks ago about liberal theology, 
if you believe that actually that's not the case, that people are basically good. In fact, they actually may be actually basically kind of Christian, and the church's job is simply to kind of go along and kind of encourage that, stir that up, then that will directly influence what you do and what, how, what you go about. How you approach mission. How you understand evangelism, making nice people nicer and good people better and getting them into the church because, well, that's where they should be. And without being too pointed, we're aware that that is the view of some types of church. Or what it means is, well, actually, yes, people aren't, you know, in that terrible state of being separated from God. God actually has a soft spot for them, and He wants to, and we hear this word often, bless them. And so, you tailor your message to appeal. What do you appeal to? Well, you appeal to yourself. Not that you have a self, or you do have, well, I'm sorry to say this, but you do. We all have a selfish nature, but you know what I mean. Not that you're deliberately selfish. But you'd like a new car, a new house. You don't like a new man. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, and so there are churches today that pitch their message. Prosperity gospel. Ah, believe in Jesus and it'll be great and you'll be more fulfilled. Basically, a form of Jesus becomes a form of life coach. So, you'll be better at your work, or better in your marriage, or better as a person, or whatever. And just very subtly, what are you appealing to? You're actually appealing to human sinful nature, which sin, S-I-N, what's sin all about? I, I'm the king of the castle, and you're dirty, you rascals. And the church tailors its message to feed, actually, the sinful nature. And it's very popular in the Western world. And unfortunately, it's also becoming very popular in the Asian world. And you can never see why. The whole side of the church goes down that road. Whereas if we take seriously what God's Word says about the plight of humanity and our spiritual need, then whatever we do, and above everything else, will not lose sight of the basic need. Whether you're comfortably off, living in Uddingston, or whether you're in uppers and living in the streets, above everything else, you need that spiritual condition fixed. And yes, you will do it with love and with care. God provided for Adam and Eve, and we provide for those, for instance, John and the good work of the Glasgow City Mission and all the rest of it. And yet, I was reading their magazine, which just came out just the other day there. I was reading an article there. What's at the heart of the magazine? How they're rejoicing over some, some of their clients coming to a living faith in Jesus Christ and are now attending an Alpha course, an Alpha Plus course to become disciples of Jesus. Why? Because actually they believe that the best way for them to get their life sorted out is to know their Creator who made them and has good plans for them. But that begins with recognizing that they need help. That we're lost without God that were under His judgment, that all have sinned and fallen short of the mark of Jesus. When we stand before God at the end of time, His Son will be standing there, Jesus Christ, 
and in a sense we'll be compared to him. You know what it's like when we get our house decorated, you don't suddenly realize how bad it is till you start painting some of the walls and you think, you know, sometimes you say, oh, just touch things up. And you start touching up and realize the whole lot need touched up. When you get older, you can't be bothered, can you? Well, my friend, we need more than a touch-up job. We need a radical restoration. And all of us, however good we may be compared to Jesus, have fallen short. He is the man. And before him, no one, not even Paul, like us, he says, like me, no one is righteous. No, not one. So that impacts our work with the children, how we thank God for, how I thank God for Karen and for her ministry there. That impacts what we do in the community. Despite all the niceness of Uddingston pride and these dear folks, they need Jesus. Because one day they're going to pop their clogs they're going to return to the ground. And eternal reality will stare them in the face. It doesn't matter how many pot plants or however nice the village may be, it'll make no difference. It underpins and directs our mission. And in a day when some parts of the church say, oh, they're all nice anyway, so it doesn't really matter. We just have to be nicer. Or, well, tell me, Jesus is just basically like a, a genie in the lamp and you rub him up the right way and you'll get what you want. We have to face the reality of a broken and sinful humanity in which all of us also lived at one time. If it wasn't for the grace of God. And God's grace is what we'll think about next week. Let's sing together the song, Soften my heart, Lord, soften my heart. From all indifference set me apart to feel your compassion, to weep with your tears. Come soften my heart, O Lord, soften my heart. Let's sing this through twice together as our offering is brought forward. Remain standing then and invite you to do so. I was going to the Stamp Club on Friday night and I had the radio on, front row, Radio 4's arts programme on the radio. And it was telling me about a wrapper. Now, a wrapper is not something that wraps up sh things in a shop, okay? A wrapper is a particular style of music. And it was speaking about this fellow, Dave. Now, I was so encouraged, Douglas, you're obviously on the edge there. You're obviously, the, you'd heard of him. Have you heard of him? Oh, well, there you are then. That's encouragement to you. I'll read it to you. This is from the Guardian's report. Mercury Prize 2019, rapper Dave wins for exceptional, and his album, his new album, which is online, Psychodrama. The South London artist wins £25,000 prize for an album the Guardian hailed as fearless and incisive. Dave has won the 2019 Hyundai Mercury Prize for his debut album, Psychodrama. Announced to the winner, Judge Annie Mack, said she album showed remarkable levels of musicianship, true artistry, courage, honesty, and it's simply exceptional. Dave hugged his mother before walking on stage to collect the award, wearing a neon tracksuit. He covered his mouth with his hand and looked shocked. He told the room that he was lost for words and invited his mother up to stand next to him. He thanked the exceptional musicians who performed alongside him tonight, name-checking fellow nominees Little Smiz, 
slow tie and now. Okay? Um, the show tie one he performed in an outfit that had naked pictures of Boris Johnson and on the back and the front it was F. I'll not tell you the whole word, but you can work out F Boris all over his tracksuit. So he didn't get the prize. Obviously thought he was needing money for his new clothes. Speaking after this sermon he handed, this is surreal, it's a massive honour and I'm glad that I've been able to repay the faith that a lot of people have put in me. I have good days and bad days, but you see the team around me, my friends, my family, they kept me strong through this process. David was presented with 25,000 pounds, blah, blah, blah. As psychodrama is framed as a therapy session, because it starts, I heard it, it starts as, like, as if you were in therapy with a counsellor, and covers his brother's incarceration, prison reform, and the diversity of the black experience. Um, it goes on to talk about different ways, I'll miss that bit out. Um, his brother, and that's the one, we don't want that, F. Boris. Um, his brother is in prison for 18 years for the murder of a young boy in one of the stations in London. And his other brother has just recently been released for fraud. They're Nigerian, um, they have no father, they live in South London where gang warfare is apparent. One of the lyrics, let me read this to you, come to this bit. It starts off, it says, you know, I used to pray, but I heard no voice. What will take the pain away? I used to pray, but heard no voice. What will take the pain away? And then he goes on to say, I'm not even sure I want to be saved. I'm not even sure I want to be saved. Weep with the Lord's tears over the countless millions of people in Britain today, especially young people, who think that's the answer. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray for Dave. I don't know him from Adam, but he's a child of Adam. And he has major issues in his life and in his family's life. And he's written us songs which express very openly, very honestly, his struggle. But Lord, as Christian people, we pray for him and the countless thousands, tens of thousands, millions who go along with so much of the spirit of this age who think the way to draw attention and to find meaning in life is to stand up dressed with F. Boris all over them. Craving for identity. Yearning to know peace. Being tossed about by every power and influence of the world and of the prince of this present age. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. And we ask very simply, but very profoundly, Lord Jesus, that you will soften our hearts. That we will have the mind of Christ. That we will see the needs with the eyes of Jesus. That we will weep the tears that are wept over the plight of the human race. And in the power of the Spirit, we will reveal the glory of Jesus Christ to our society. It's a big prayer, 
And yet that's our desire here in our community as a little fellowship. But you're a big God. You keep your promises. And you brought again from the dead your own Son, our only Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.